Chapter Twenty of the Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter Twenty Sharpshooting. I had returned to my blanket and was about to stretch myself upon it when the whoop of a gruya drew my attention. Looking up, I saw one of these birds flying towards the camp. It was coming through a break in the trees that opened from the river. It flew low, and tempted a shot with its broad wings and slow, lazy flight. A report rang upon the air. One of the Mexicans had fired his escopette. But the bird flew on, plying its wings with more energy, as if to bear itself out of reach. There was a laugh from the trappers, and a voice cried out, "'You're fool! Do you think you could hit a spread blanket with that beetle-shaped blunderbox? Pish!' I turned to see who had delivered this odd speech. Two men were poising their rifles, bringing them to bear upon the bird. One was the young hunter whom I have described. The other was an Indian whom I had not seen before. The cracks were simultaneous, and the crane, dropping its long neck, came whirling down among the trees, where it caught upon a high branch, and remained. From their position neither party knew that the other had fired. A tent was between them, and the two reports had seemed as one. A trapper cried out, "'Well done, Garry. Lord help the thing that's afore old Kilbar's muzzle when you squints through her hindsights.' The Indian just then stepped round the tent. Hearing this side speech, and perceiving the smoke still oozing from the muzzle of the young hunter's gun, he turned to the latter, with the interrogation, "'Did you fire, sir?' This was said in well-accentuated and most un-Indian-like English which would have drawn my attention to the man had not his singularly imposing appearance riveted me already. "'Who is he?' I inquired from one near me. "'Don't know. Fresh arrive,' was the short answer. "'Do you mean that he is a stranger here?' "'Just so. He come in thar a while agone. Don't believe anybody knows him. I guess the captain does. I seed them shake hands.' I looked at the Indian with increasing interest. He seemed a man of about thirty years of age, and not much under seven feet in height. He was proportioned like an Apollo, and on this account appeared smaller than he actually was. His features were of the Roman type, and his fine forehead, his aquiline nose, and broad jawbone gave him the appearance of talent, as well as firmness and energy. He was dressed in a hunting shirt, leggings, and moccasins but all these differed from anything worn either by the hunters or their Indian allies. The shirt itself was made out of the dressed hide of the red deer, but differently prepared from that used by the trappers. It was bleached almost to the whiteness of a kid glove. The breast, unlike theirs, was close, and beautifully embroidered with stained porcupine quills. The sleeves were similarly ornamented, and the cape and skirts were trimmed with the soft snow-white fur of the ermine. A row of entire skins of that animal hung from the skirt border, forming a fringe both graceful and costly. But the most singular feature about this man was his hair. It fell loosely over his shoulders, and swept the ground as he walked. It could not have been less than seven feet in length. It was black, glossy, and luxuriant, and reminded me of the tails of those great Flemish horses I had seen in the funeral carriages of London. He wore upon his head the war-eagle bonnet, with its full circle of plumes, the finest triumph of savage taste. This magnificent headdress added to the majesty of his appearance. 
A white buffalo robe hung from his shoulders, with all the graceful draping of a toga. Its silky fur corresponded to the color of his dress, and contrasted strikingly with his own dark tresses. There were other ornaments about his person. His arms and accoutrements were shining with metallic brightness, and the stock and butt of his rifle were richly inlaid with silver. I have been thus minute in my description, as the first appearance of this man impressed me with a picture that can never be effaced from my memory. He was the beau ideal of a picturesque and romantic savage. And yet there was nothing savage either in his speech or bearing. On the contrary, the interrogation which he had just addressed to the trapper was put in the politest manner. The reply was not so courteous. "'Did I fire? Didn't ye hear a crack? Didn't ye see the thing fall? Look yonder!' Gary, as he spoke, pointed up to the bird. We must have fired simultaneously. As the Indian said this, he appealed to his gun, which was still smoking at the muzzle. "'Look here, Injun. Whether we fired simultaneously, or extraneously, or catawampously, ain't the flappin' a beaver's tail to me. But I took sight on that bird. I hut that bird. And twere my bullet brought the thing down.' "'I think I must have hit it, too.' replied the Indian, modestly. "'That's like, with that ar spangled gimcrack,' said Garry, looking disdainfully at the other's gun, and then proudly at his own brown weather-beaten piece, which he had just wiped, and was about to reload. "'Gimcrack or no,' answered the Indian, "'she sends a bullet straighter and farther than any piece I have hitherto met with. I'll warrant she has sent hers through the body of the crane. "'Look here, mister.' for I suppose we must call a gentleman mister who speaks so fine and looks so fine, though he bees an engine. It's mighty easy to settle who hut that bird. That thing's a fifty or thereabouts. Kilbar's a ninety. Tain't hard to tell which has plugged the varmint. We'll soon see. And so saying, the hunter stepped off towards the tree on which hung the gruya high up. How are you to get it down? cried one of the men who had stepped forward to witness the settlement of this curious dispute. There was no reply, for every one saw that Garry was poising his rifle for a shot. The crack followed, and the branch, shivered by his bullet, bent downward under the weight of the gruya. But the bird, caught in a double fork, still stuck fast on the broken limb. A murmur of approbation followed the shot. These were men not accustomed to hurrah loudly at a trivial incident. The Indian now approached, having reloaded his piece. Taking aim, he struck the branch at the shattered point, cutting it clean from the tree. The bird fell to the ground, amidst expressions of applause from the spectators, but chiefly from the Mexican and Indian hunters. It was at once picked up and examined. Two bullets had passed through its body. Either would have killed it. A shadow of unpleasant feeling was visible on the face of the young trapper. In the presence of so many hunters of every nation, to be thus equaled beaten in the inn of his favorite weapon, and by an engine, still worse by one of them are gingerbread guns. The mountain men have no faith in an ornamented stock or a big boar. Spangled rifles, they say, are like spangled razors made for selling to greenhorns. It was evident, however, that the strange Indian's rifle had been made to shoot as well. It required all the strength of nerve which the trapper possessed to conceal his chagrin. Without saying a word, he commenced wiping out his gun with that stoical calmness peculiar to men of his calling. I observed that he proceeded to load with more than usual care. It was evident that he would not rest satisfied with the trial already made, 
but would either beat the engine or be himself whipped into shucks. So he declared in a muttered speech to his comrades. His piece was soon loaded, and swinging her to the hunter's carry, he turned to the crowd, now collected from all parts of the camp. "'There's one kind of shootin', said he, that's just as easy as fallin' off a log. Any man can do it as can look straight through hindsights. But then there's another kind that ain't so easy. It needs nerve.' Here the trapper paused, and looked towards the Indian, who was also reloading. "'Look here, stranger,' continued he, addressing the latter. "'Have you got a comrade on the ground as knows you're shooting?' The Indian, after a moment's hesitation, answered, "'Yes.' "'Can your comrade depend on your shot?' "'Oh, I think so. Why do you wish to know that?' "'Why, I'm a-going to show you a shot we sometimes practice at Bent's Fort, just to tickle the greenhorns.' "'Tain't much of a shot, neither. But it tries the narves a little, I reckon. Hoy! Rube! What do we want?' This was spoken in an energetic and angry-like voice that turned all eyes to the quarter whence it proceeded. At the first glance there seemed to be no one in that direction. In looking more carefully among the logs and stumps, an individual was discovered seated by one of the fires. It would have been difficult to tell that it was a human body had not the arms at that moment been in motion. The back was turned toward the crowd, and the head had disappeared, sunk forward over the fire. The object, from where we were standing, looked more like the stump of a cottonwood dressed in dirt-colored buckskin than the body of a human being. On getting nearer, and round to the front of it, it was seen to be a man, though a very curious one, holding a long rib of deer-meat in both hands, which he was polishing with a very poor set of teeth. The whole appearance of this individual was odd and striking. His dress, if dress it could be called, was simple as it was savage. It consisted of what might have once been a hunting-shirt, but which now looked more like a leathern bag with the bottom ripped open, and the sleeves sewed into the sides. It was of a dirty brown color, wrinkled at the hollow of the arms, patched round the armpits, and greasy all over. It was fairly caked with dirt. There was no attempt at either ornament or fringe. There had been a cape, but this had evidently been drawn upon from time to time for patches and other uses, until scarcely a vestige of it remained. The leggings and moccasins were on a par with the shirt, and seemed to have been manufactured out of the same hide. They, too, were dirt-brown, patched, wrinkled, and greasy. They did not meet each other, but left a piece of the ankle bare, and that also was dirt-brown, like the buckskin. There was no undershirt, waistcoat, or other garment to be seen, with the exception of a close-fitting cap, which had once been catskin, but the hair was all worn off it, leaving a greasy, leathery-looking surface that corresponded well with the other parts of the dress. Cap, shirt, leggings, and moccasins looked as if they had never been stripped off since the day they were first tried on, and that might have been many a year ago. The shirt was open, displaying the naked breast and throat, and these, as well as the face, hands, and ankles, had been tanned by the sun and smoked by the fire to the hue of rusty copper. The whole man, clothes and all, looked as if he had been smoked on purpose. His face bespoke a man of sixty, the features were sharp and somewhat aquiline, and the small eye was dark, quick, and piercing. His hair was black and cut short. His complexion had been naturally brunette, though there was nothing of the Frenchman or Spaniard on his physiognomy. He was more likely of the black Saxon breed. 
As I looked at this man, for I had walked towards him, prompted by some instinct of curiosity, I began to fancy that there was a strangeness about him, independent of the oddness of his attire. There seemed to be something peculiar about his head, something wanting. What was it? I was not long in conjecture. When fairly in front of him I saw what was wanting. It was his ears. This discovery impressed me with a feeling akin to awe. There is something awful in a man without ears. It suggests some horrid drama, some terrible scene of cruel vengeance. It suggests the idea of crime committed and punishment inflicted. These thoughts were wandering through my mind, when all at once I remembered a remark which Seguin had made on the previous night. This, then, thought I, is the person of whom he spoke. My mind was satisfied. After making answer as above, the old fellow sat for some time with his head between his knees, chewing, mumbling, and growling like a lean old wolf, angry at being disturbed in his meal. "'Come here, Rube. I want ye a bit,' continued Garry, in a tone of half-entreaty. "'And so he will want me a bit. This child don't move a peg till he has cleaned his here rib. He don't now.' "'Doggone it, man! Make haste, then!' And the impatient trapper dropped the butt of his rifle to the ground, and stood waiting in sullen silence. After chewing and mumbling and growling a few minutes longer, old Rube, for that was the name by which the leathery sinner was known, slowly erected his lean carcass, and came walking up to the crowd. "'What do we want, Billy?' he inquired, going up to the trapper. "'I want you to hold this,' answered Garry, offering him a round, white shell about the size of a watch, a species of which there were many strewed over the ground. "'It's a bet, boy ye?' "'No, it is not. Ain't wasting your powder, are ye?" "'I've been beat shootin,' replied the trapper, in an undertone, "'by that our injun.' The old man looked over to where the strange Indian was standing erect and majestic, in all the pride of his plumage. There was no appearance of triumph or swagger about him, as he stood leaning on his rifle, in an attitude at once calm and dignified. It was plain, from the way old Rube surveyed him, that he had seen him before, though not in that camp. After passing his eyes over him, from head to foot, and there resting them a moment, a low murmur escaped his lips, which ended abruptly in the word, "'Cocoa.' "'A cocoa, do you think?' inquired the other, with an apparent interest. "'Are ye blind, Billy? Don't ye see his moccasin?' "'Yes, you're right. But I was in thar nation two years ago. I seed no man such as that.' "'He went there. Where, then?' "'Where there's no great show o' redskins. He may shoot well.' He did once on a time, plumb center. You knew him, did ye? Oh, yes. Onct. Putty squaw. Handsome gal. Where do ye want me to go? I thought that Garry seemed inclined to carry the conversation further. There was an evident interest in his manner when the other mentioned the squaw. Perhaps he had some tender recollection. But seeing the other preparing to start off, he pointed to an open glade that stretched eastward and simply answered sixty. "'Take care of my claws, do you hear? Them injuns has made him scarce. This child can't spare another.' The old trapper said this with a flourish of his right hand. I noticed that the little finger had been chopped off. "'Never fear, old hoss,' was the reply. And at this the smoky carcass moved away with the slow and regular pace that showed he was measuring the yards." When he had stepped the sixtieth yard, he faced about and stood erect, placing his heels together. He then extended his right arm, raising it until his hand was on a level with his shoulder, 
and holding the shell in his fingers flat side to the front, shouted back, "'Now, Billy, shoot, and be hanged to yer!' The shell was slightly concave. The concavity turned to the front. The thumb and finger reached half round the circumference, so that a part of the edge was hidden, and the surface turned towards the marksman was not larger than the dial of a common watch. This was a fearful sight. It is one not so common among the mountain men as travellers would have you believe. The feat proves the marksman's skill, first, if successful, by showing the strength and steadiness of his nerves, secondly, by the confidence which the other reposes in it, thus declared by stronger testimony than any oath. In any case, the feat of holding the mark is at least equal to that of hitting it. There are many hunters willing to risk taking the shot, but few who care to hold the shell. It was a fearful sight, and my nerves tingled as I looked on. Many others felt as I. No one interfered. There were few present who would have dared, even had these two men been making preparations to fire at each other. Both were men of mark among their comrades, trappers of the first class. Gary, drawing a long breath, planted himself firmly, the heel of his left foot opposite to, and some inches in advance of, the hollow of his right. Then jerking up his gun and throwing the barrel across his left palm, he cried out to his comrade, "'Steady, old bone and sinyer! How's at ya?' The words were scarcely out when the gun was leveled. There was a moment's death-like silence, all eyes looking to the mark. Then came the crack, and the shell was seen to fly, shivered into fifty fragments. There was a cheer from the crowd. Old Rube stopped to pick up one of the pieces and after examining it for a moment shouted in a loud voice, "'Plum center, by—' The young trapper had, in effect, hit the mark in the very center, as the blue stain of the bullet testified. End of chapter 20